the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And joining me on the phone right now, it is a co-host, Alan Niven. Good day, Alan. How are you? I'm very well, Mitch. How are you doing today? Good, good. And I'm doing very good because I have got a great, great show. First and foremost, from the Flock of Seagulls, it is Mike Score. They have a new album coming out later this summer called Ascension. And, and Alan, I, I'm sure you're going to love this because I'm going to describe it to you. It is a 12-track album comprised of unique renditions of some of their greatest hits featuring the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Now, how cool is that? Well, yeah, the Prague Philharmonic, Philharmonic out of uh, Czechoslovakia, I'm sure it's a really rocking little combo. Um, I kind of wonder, though, I mean, are we going to have uh, an hour-long version of Iran? I mean, That's right, with thimbles and everything. It's going to be fantastic. Fantastic. Um, you know, because Flock was uh, one of those bands from the UK that benefited from uh, the American record industry going into a recession and not wanting to spend money developing American acts and signing American acts. So they were importing Australian and UK acts that had already had success in the charts over there. And if I remember correctly, Flock came from Liverpool. Um, awesome. I think I think they were. Uh, I think they had an association. Some people may know this guy, a guy called Bill Nelson, who was a, um, a very particular guitar player, kind of in the Robert Fripp mold. And um, you know, forgive me, but I remember I ran. My God, I remember. I remember a lot of those eighty songs, but uh, I don't remember. You know anything much other than that well there was space space age love song which we we certainly can't forget and you know oh, there you go yeah it was go. it was a great listen it was a great band at the time because when mtv and you know friday night videos which i think was on nbc or was it or maybe it was on cbc up here in canada but when all those video shows started coming you know some of the early ones of just april wine and just what it, were, were so very uh, visually uh, prosaic or pedestrian. Then you had these bands that came out with the looks and that, you know, whether it was the Motley Crues or the Flock of Seagulls, you know, there was a certain something. And and and, and Mike Score, who I spoke to, uh, is, is very clear that the image is what gave them a career. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, it was the most one of the most extraordinary haircuts that uh, I've ever seen. It was a kind of sort of V-Delta hanging off the top of his forehead and how he got it there, God alone knows. But, you know, the English sometimes go spinning off in their images. Do you remember Zig Zig Sputnik, for example? Oh, I do. Yeah. They were the next big thing that lasted half an album. (laughs) I know. I mean, God God bless the Brits. Uh, Sometimes we totally lose it on the image thing. I mean, you know, I think David... Bowie took it about as far as you can in every direction. And there were still people who wanted to go further than David went. Well, listen, I'm a fan of one of the greatest bands in terms of imagery being Kiss. And so, you know, it it, it does sell records. I don't think I would have ever picked up, you know, my brother's record collection and stared at a Foreigner album had it not been, you know. So so that's why I stared at Kiss, because of that makeup and stuff. Um, Mike, yeah. 
image is important and um, Aunt Flock um, coming over here as part of an 80s tour and I think uh, talking yeah. of image um, oh I gotta, I, I gotta I heard, talk to you I about this a, tour it's, it's spectacular but go ahead I, I heard a, I heard a rumor that uh, Terry Nunn of Berlin was going to be a part of that too. Yes, and so I'm going to ask you about it. So they are doing what they call the Lost 80s Live Tour, and you can actually go find out about it at Lost 80s. So L O S T, then the number eight zero S L I V E, Lost 80s Live dot com. And depending on which where you see the show, um, you're going to get Flock of Seagulls. You're going to get Wang Chung in pretty much every city. But then depending on the other cities, you may get Men Without Hats. You may get Gene Loves Jezebel or Animotion or The Motels or Missing Persons, New Shoes, and then eventually um, Berlin. And, of course, you were involved with Berlin. Now, set me chronologically. You were involved with Berlin, obviously, I must be, before Great White and before Guns – well, definitely before Guns N' Roses, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, after Motley Crue. Okay. Um, and before the other two. And uh, after Motley Crue, um, the people I, would, I was working for decided that they wanted to start a label. Uh, so we started a label called Enigma. And for the first six months, Enigma consisted of one person. And that was it. I, didn't, I, I did everything that needed to be done. And believe it or not, the first signing was Terry Nunn in Berlin. And I have to say that recent pictures I've seen of Terry is that is a lady who has aged amazingly. She looks as fabulous today as she did back then. Well, I don't think she aged at all, quite frankly. I, I've, I've seen the, the pictures with the press releases, and she looks as if she was 35 years old. I mean, yeah. she, she really does. And, and what an absolute great voice that she had, has. You know, she's... Uh, now, she wasn't actually going to be in Berlin for long when you got involved. She had, correct me if I'm wrong here, but she was going to walk away and become a famous whatever soap opera actress or whatever actress. And then somebody tapped her on the shoulder and said, oh, oh excuse me, darling, you've got a record deal. Uh, stick around. She had quit the band um, before I was even given the demo tape. Um, and the manager neglected Perry Watts Russell who went on to a, a stellar career as an A&R man at Capitol, um, quietly neglected to tell me that uh, she had quit the band. And when I called, he left me three cassettes to listen to over a weekend. And I actually thought, wow, one of these is really worth looking at, um, especially for a tiny little label. And uh, when I contacted him and said, oh, you know, I think I would like to sign your band Berlin. And apparently that caused panic at the other end because Terry had already left the band and they had to persuade her to come back and and uh, finish up a record and, and and we put it out. But it worked. It did. And uh, what's the song? Take My Breath Away that ended up on the Top Gun soundtrack is one of the marking singles of that era. I mean, when you yep. think back to that era, that's that's one of the biggies. Yep. Uh, the, the Lost 80s Live Tour, by the way, in some cities will also get Tommy Two-Tone, Dramarama, Cutting Crew, uh, and Tony Hadley of um, Spandu, Spando, Spandu, Spando Ballet. Uh, Spandau. So, Spandau. Spandau well, Ballet. Yeah, but I mean, you say Bowie instead of Bowie, so I mean, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> well, you know, it, 
we we Brits have our own way of saying things. So. Yeah, that's right. And and so uh, so so stick around for my interview with Mike Score. But I've also got Kofi Baker of um, well, he's doing his Music of Cream, the 50th anniversary. So he's paying tribute to what his dad and of course Jack Bruce and Eric Clapton did. And then at the end of the episode, dun, 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 we have the one and only a Guns and Roses. And there's a lot of great stuff going on there. But uh, before we get to all of that. Let us get over here to Mike's score of A Flock of Seagulls. We are speaking with A Flock of Seagulls, a frontman, Mike score. The new album coming out later this year is Ascension. And of course, we've got the Lost 80s live tour all across North America this summer. Mike, an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It's been about 10 or 15 years since we last did an interview. <laughs> uh, yeah, 10, 15 years, you know, it's a, uh, close friends. Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> Keep it tight. Luckily, we've kept in touch by, by email, but I, I believe at the time, I think the big thing at the time when we last spoke was the bands reunited, so that must have been 2004, 2005, so it's been it's been way too long. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago, but yeah, it must have been 2005 or something like that. Something like that. So so let's just, let, let's talk about this new recording, because you've got the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, it it is it is described in the press release as unique rendition of some of your greatest hits and of course more importantly it's got Ali, Frank and Paul not the original lineup but certainly the classic lineup of the band so so talk to me about getting this project together when is it going to be released just, just give me all the details well i think it's going to be released at the end of june i think that's what it's slated for that was the last i heard um it was definitely a different kind of you know, project because of, of the orchestral side of it, you know, and um, I was asked if I would be interested in doing, a, you know, basically the best of with an orchestra in, involved in it. And I thought, yeah, what a great idea, you know. And uh, then the next idea that came along was, can we use the original band that made the, that basically recorded those songs? So I said, you know, every everybody that was there at the beginning when these songs were recorded, yeah, let's get everybody involved and let's redo it. And it can be almost like an anniversary album, but taken a step further than we did it in the 80s. So uh, interesting, very interesting to have an orchestra because, you know, the songs are written for synthesizers, basically, and, and guitars. So to hear orchestras do it was just... Uh, completely different angle to us so it was it was very very what can i say very like uh pleasing that somebody thought of it that way in terms of reimagining the songs when you bring the orchestra in do you just say we'll just sort of run it through and just sort of add a couple of trumpets or or how do you how do you sort of reimagine the songs uh totally well what we did was we basically all worked in separate studios because we all live in different places now so we went in and we recreated the songs as they were in the 80s. And then uh, an arranger came along and listened to what we'd done and basically rearranged the orchestra to go in with the original songs. He added some nice intros, some slightly different melodies, some, um, you know, lush, lush strings and stuff like that. Um, and basically it, it all started to come together. Um, 
it was very strange doing everything in different studios, whereas, you know, we'd never, never done anything like that before. We never even actually met up or talked. We just went in and did our parts. And then it was put to put together like a jigsaw for the orchestra to work on. I'm actually very excited about this album. I think it's going to be great. Now, of course, you do have the guys back. You have your brother back, Ali, and, and of course, uh, Frank and Paul. What was it like for them to come back? And what was it like for you? Because you've been using other musicians in the band. What was it like to have the original guys? That is there a certain chemistry with you four that is undeniable? I think there is. It's kind of weird that when we did get together... Uh, only about uh, about three or four weeks ago now, we still had the same humor and we still had the same kind of magic, you know, that that, that happened 30 odd years ago. Um, and it, it all just comes from a mixture of characters, of course, you know, like any any good band has like somebody who wants this, somebody who wants that. And, and you mix it all together and, and it all comes out good. Um, I think. It was great for what it was, but when we did the reunion 15 years ago, you know, the, the same chemistry that made it broke it, if you know what I mean. Right. And uh, that that becomes part of a problem with knowing somebody so well. And uh, but this time we, you know, we tried to gloss over any of the old stuff, and we just went ahead, made a video, uh, did some did some um, extra recording and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, it, it's one of those band things that a mixture of four people creates a certain thing and it, it always recreates itself. Now, of course, the the last album that uh, A Flock of Seagulls put out was in 1995. And you, of course, did Zebrida, if I'm pronouncing it right, Zebrida, Zebrida in uh, 2000, Zebrata, yeah. Zebrata in 2014. Yeah. Uh, does this motivate you to get, get either yourself back in the studio or... Uh, a flock of seagulls to put out a new album in 2018 or 2019 and does it get sort of the the, the creative juices flowing well i mean i'm always creating the my 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 problem is i write for myself and when i've written a song i just kind of put it away (laughs) and i don't think about anything but the next one and because there's uh, not really record companies now like they used to be it's it's you know, more difficult to promote and it's more difficult to, to get it together, uh, as far as say promotion and, 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 uh, publicity and all that stuff. Um, it's easier to make a record now, but it's harder to get it out there into the public ear. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a chance that there'll be another Seagull album, but I don't know whether it will be the old guys new guys or i don't even know if i'll put it put it out as a solo album but i'm i'm you know writing songs all the time it's what i it's it's my great pleasure in music is to write songs and and uh that's what i do (laughs) that's what you do so so let's look at the lost 80s live tour now uh it is it has sort of different iterations depending on what city you're going to see it in in montreal we get men without hats some people will get boys don't cry the romantics book of love and other bands uh just talk to me about that package and those kind of packages now you're from what i understand you're going to be on every single show yeah i mean i've i've worked with uh, rob the agent on this for a few years doing doing his shows you know and we've always uh we've always headlined or been close to headlining and he he called me up and he said, 
I am putting together his biggest uh, tour ever. And he said, and, you know, uh, uh, we've worked together so much. I want you guys to headline it completely uh, end to end. So I just said, that's great because, you know, I, I actually prefer to know uh, that I'm doing the whole tour. And uh, then the other bands, I think it depends on the, you know, whether they are local to that area. I mean, there are a few that I think, um, I think in Montreal, Men Without Hats might even headline it. Yeah, we got, you know, we, get, I, we get Men Without Hats. We get Wang Chung, Naked Eyes, Animotion, uh, Farrington and Men, and When in Rome and New Shoes. Uh, that's a great lineup. That's going to be fantastic, by the way. I can't, I can't wait. Yeah, all, all the shows will be fantastic. And the thing is, you know, there's a lot of bands want to do this kind of tour, a lot of 80s acts, you know, where you, you don't have to kill yourself and play for an hour. You just play three, four, five, six songs you're on and you're off and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take too much energy and you move on. Um, it, they, they all turn out to be great. And it, I think it just depends on what other bands are doing, whether they can fit on the tour. I was asked very early, could I put time aside for the tour? So I said, yeah, complete, you know, I'll do the whole thing. And that's uh, good for us. Good for fans. Um, and it's going to uh, help, you know, to promote everything I'm doing. Yeah. Now, well, so what is everything you're doing other than the the symphony or, or the, the the reimagined stuff, the ascension, and perhaps some maybe a, a solo record? What else are, are are folks able to check out? Is it just is sort of just music? Um, yeah. I mean, I've just did an EP with a um, a guy from Mexico called Isaac Junkie. That he he's very kind of dark, dark edged. And I just did all the vocals for an EP that he's just released. Um, so, you know, people that are looking at A Flock of Seagulls will will notice that as well. Uh, I've been working with uh, a poet called Jimmy Robinson from Miami. And again, he, uh, he wrote lyrics and uh, his friend, I can't remember his name, who's a producer, wrote the music and they gave it to me and said, can you find a way to put these poems to music? So I've done about five songs for that. And that uh, one of those songs has just been released. Um, so, the, you know, there's continual things. I've been trying not to just, uh, well, you know, I've been trying to expand my horizons and actually become a better singer. Because I think if I'm a better singer, then... I don't have to write everything and sing it. I can just sing other people's things. And, you know, that leads me into uh, other people maybe sending me songs and saying, can you sing this? Or people bringing me in. And um, uh, as far as, you know, I'm not really a musician, but I could be a singer. Right. Uh, so, so talk to me about those early days, because growing up at that time, you know, I was very much into the, the harder rock, you know, your, 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 your Black Sabbaths and your Kiss and all this uh -huh. stuff. And yet in 1982, when the album of Flock of Seagulls came by, uh, the first album, it, it, it transcended everything. It was one of those, there are, there are a few artists where their songs and, and I ran and so, it, everybody likes it. Um, talk to me about those early days and, and why do you think the band had such an impact and why that song became so embedded into all our sort of collective memories. Uh, first of all, it, any, any song that uh, 
how can I say it, reaches out and touches and touches you and has all kinds of influences. I mean, the song had a heavy beat, so it was good to dance to. It had synthesizers, so people that were into more tech stuff were suddenly like, oh, that's cool. It's got synths and stuff in it. It had different melodies than people had heard before. And it had big guitar, you know, big lead guitar and stuff like that. So I think it, it brought people in from that liked all kinds of music. You know, people maybe like yourself that liked heavier music liked the guitar, you know. Uh, people that wanted more uh, synthy kind of stuff, the synth was there as well. Dance people, big drums for the dancing. So I think without really planning it, just what we were hearing in our heads was 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 spreading across borders, if you like, you know, and I think, uh, oh, a huge crossover I, success. I mean, it just, it just was, was spectacular what it did in crossing over. Now, how important was the medium at the time? Because when, when I was growing up and, and videos were very much in its infancy, even a little bit before MTV, you had to go search out the content. And Iran was one of these, uh, how important was, TV and video medium to the band becoming a success? Oh, I think it was pivotal. You know, uh, MTV was totally pivotal to what we were doing. Um, I don't think we really uh, envisioned that. It kind of came along at the same time. And like a lot of uh, things, you know, you're just lucky to be in the right place with the right thing at the right time. And I think... uh, being one of the first videos ever on MTV was for us a spectacular event, you know, because it took us, took us from uh, no one knowing who we were and we, they'd never seen us. And it put us more or less in everybody's TV everywhere, all across America. And that meant that when we came to tour, they already knew what to expect. And it was, it was, you know, just great to get out there and people know what you look like and know what you sounded like. It was, it was, um, it was that magic moment, you could say. It, it really was. And, and from my perspective, like I said, the, the content, the availability of content was limited. So I would watch and, and my friends would watch whatever was available, whether it was a Duran Duran video or, 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 or a Ronnie James Dio. And, and that's what we did. And, and Flock of Seagulls was one of those, um, Image. How important was image? At some point when MTV and the video thing came out, when you went into the studio, what was the first thought? Was it how do we project it image wise or was it no, we have to write songs first. Image will come later. Um, it, it was mainly we wrote the songs first. We we had ideas for image and, you know, the image we wanted to project was along the lines of David Bowie and uh, um, something sci-fi, you know, right. Um, right. something uh, Tron, like, a like Tron or something, right? Back then. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Just something that was not rock and roll, if you like, you know, not, not straightforward rock and roll. We, we went to clubs and stuff and everything was starting to go in the direction of new wave. And we wanted to be in that direction but we also wanted to pay tribute to stuff that we liked. You know, I mean, I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. You know, Paul was a Queen fan. So uh, we wanted to 
look modern and yet retain some of the influences of old stuff. Um, I think that was quite a shock to America because it was going on in England, but not in America. Uh, and I think when it finally tipped onto MTV, a lot of kids in America, I think they went, this is more like where I want to be. You know, I don't want to be uh, classed as a heavy metal kid. I want my own thing. And I think that the new wave and the end of the punk era gave them a new way of, of, of dressing and a new way of listening to music. And it was their thing, not their parents. Yeah, no, it, it, it's just, you know, I'm just looking back and it, it was it really was amazing because when, when you looked at the bands of the 70s, you had to go to the arena to understand what Queen was. You had to go to the arena to understand what Led Zeppelin was. And when it came to A Flock of Seagulls and to Madonna and to Duran Duran and to Romantics, all you had to do was click the button on the TV and it, it, it changed. <laughs> yeah, it really changed how you consumed music. Um, moving on from there, though, Iran, of course, the, the big hit. Was that a bit of an albatross for, for you in the record company where they would come up and say, you know, on the second album and on the third album, we don't hear another Iran, go back and write again? Or did they take that success and say, hey, just give us what you got. We're, we're, you know, give us Wishing If I Had a Photograph of You. Give us Space Age Love Song. How did, this, how did the success, the initial success sort of set sail or, or set the course for the band after that? Well, I think that Iran, you know, opened all the doors so people were willing to listen. But, you know, you don't need another Iran when you've got Wishing coming up behind it. You know, because to me, Wishing was a much better song a much uh, a much more personal song, if you like. Um, and I think that tipped us into another audience as well, because I think people that liked Iran still liked Wishing, but it, Wishing took us again further into being a synth band, you know. I remember a friend calling me up. I was in New York when Wishing was released, and and they said, this is like, how did you do that? Because it's just like, it, it, I've never heard anything like it before. You know, and really it's just, uh, when you're in a band, magic happens. You know, if it's right, the magic happens. And, and that's, with us, we'd start off with a simple idea and we'd work on it. And all of a sudden the song would overtake us and write itself. So I think if the mood is right and the, the people are right, then you get you get great songs. And uh, having Iran been a hit gave us confidence to move on to stuff like Wishing, you know. Um, and the record company were just like, "Hey, it, it, you guys wrote Iran. Uh, you guys have written Wishing, so I'm pretty sure you guys know what you're on about." And the record company, their job is to put it out there and sell it. You know, our job is to make it. Yeah, and, and, and it really was a different time in terms of selling it. How how supportive were they? Because now, you know, when I talk to artists about record companies, they say, well, there's no tour support. And well, they'll, they just sort of put the album out there and, and you know, 5,000 people buy it and it sort of just dies. We make our money on touring and on selling merchandise and T-shirts and all that stuff. How supportive was the record company back then for a band like A Flock of Seagulls? Um as far as I can remember, they were very supportive. You know, we were there, we were their kingpin at the time. You know, Jive Records was not a huge company. They had a lot to do with publishing and stuff like that. But um, anything we wanted to do, there was usually support there. 
uh, in some way, maybe not exactly what we wanted, but they never ever, as far as I know, turned us down for anything. And they, they, you know, they were quite, uh, quite free in letting us be who we wanted to be as far as creativity and time and stuff like that. Um, I think as they got bigger and things were handed off to other people within the company, then, then it changed. But in the first couple of albums, I think, yeah, they were, they were good to us, you know? Yeah. So, so let's look at the personnel, uh, being in a band with, with a family member, a brother in this case, uh, talk to me a little bit about sort of the, the positives of it in, in a sense, when it comes to a band vote, you, you, you would think your brother's going to stick with you, but on the other hand, it's your brother. He, he, he knows exactly what buttons to push to piss you off. Uh, excuse the language, but uh-huh. so, right. So, so talk to me yeah. about sort of the positives and also sort of some of the drawbacks of having a family member uh, in, in a band with you. Well, you know, the, the positives are that, yeah, you do get some moral support. Uh, if there's something going on in the band, uh, you know, your brother's more than likely to side with you because you have a similar growing, you know, growing up and a similar way of thinking. So that's the positive side. The other side is that your brother is not scared to turn around and go, I'm not going to do that. Right. (laughs) So if I write a song and it's got a beat that he doesn't like, he just says, I'm the drummer and I'll do a beat that I like. So that can cause friction and arguments. Um, There's also, uh, you know, for me, I was in bands for quite a while before my brother started drumming. So, uh, to me, it was like, listen, listen, you should, you know, you should listen to me because I've been in bands for quite a while. Um, he didn't particularly want to do that. I wouldn't say it was bad, but sometimes it got very um, uh, intense between me and my brother. And, you know, and the other thing is we weren't afraid to go at each other and literally fight about things, you know. So on the road, certain things would happen and it would come to come to blows and then an hour later we'd have to go on stage you know um uh, it's hard to say certain things like you know too much partying and you know i wasn't really into partying because i was a singer and i had to sing the next day and um you know uh, and because i was a front man i had to look good i had to feel good about going on whereas you know my brother could have a few drinks and feel a bit of bit hung over but still go and pound the hell out of the drums you know whereas i would go don't do that and you go i'll do what i like so the whole thing with brothers in bands is is it's it's great to have your brother there but then other times you go i wish it was somebody else i mean just look at oasis you know brilliant together uh but obviously hating each other it it can be it can be quite a quite a thing now in terms of the relationship with him now, after all these years, you know, 30 years and stuff, is it smoothed over or is he still that son of a gun in the band that drove you nuts? <laughs> well, yeah, that hasn't really changed. But, you know, we're brothers, so we can talk and we can just, you know, a, a good conversation with me and my brother is, how are you doing? Great. OK, cool. Me too. That's it. You know, <laughs> yeah. come, come record the symphony so, album with me. Yeah, so as as long as uh, you know, as long as he's my brother, then that's how it's going to be. And and you know, he's my big brother, so uh, he has his ways, and I have my ways. And somewhere in the middle, we can meet. Um, 
I would, in in some ways, I'd recommend to have your brother in the band. And in other ways, like I said, it's the worst thing you can possibly do. But um, I'm glad he was in the band overall. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and and as a fan, so so are we because it gave us those those memorable songs. Uh, Paul Reynolds, you you get to um, the story of a young heart, and Paul says, "Okay, I'm done." Uh, talk to me about that moment, and and was that like, oh, "Okay, we'll just get a new guitarist and we'll move on," or was that like, "Oh, shoot, now what?" Um, the thing is without saying too much because you know Paul has has his own thoughts to me Paul was influenced outside the band um we kind of had an agreement when we first got a record deal that always come inside the band don't listen to anyone outside it's our band but Paul was very young you know he was 18 or something so his influences were were from outside the band. Um, and to me, that was a, a big no-no. So I just said to him, you know, basically, Paul, you know, you've got to basically stop what you're doing and come back to us. And he didn't want to, you know, he was having a lot of fun out there. He was, uh, you know, running around New York, having a great time, but I don't think he's, his mind was particularly on the band at that time. Um, I did my share of partying and then I woke up and said, if this is going to last, I need to stop doing this and get down to working on music. Um, so eventually after, uh, I mean, you know, story of a young heart was, um, they weren't really, none of the rest of the band were really involved in writing it because it was a personal project to me about a friend of mine that killed himself. So I wanted to write songs about that. And although Paul, played some great stuff on it um i don't think his his heart was really there anymore he, he the influences outside had, had drifted him away yeah and i and i remember from the from the bands reunited show or maybe it was an interview after where he sort of said it was just too much it was too much touring too i just i couldn't take it um and of course, folks who might not know, uh, Story of a Young Heart was reissued in 2008 with a whole bunch of bonus tracks and, and definitely, definitely worth checking out. But uh, Bands Reunited, um, uh, the, the show premiered in 2004. Flock of Seagulls was one of those bands that got in there. Um, my my first question, maybe a little bit, um, I don't want to say negative on the sense, but was that a real Bands Reunited where they sort of came to you out of the blue and and or was it sort of this scripted show where it was like, okay, we, we've all signed contracts and we'll, we'll just sort of pretend. And uh, Talk to me a little bit about that show. And, and I mean, was it, was it TV or was it real? No, it was real. It was, uh, well, it was brought on by the show. They, I was doing a show in, um, I think I was in Tampa. And they came to me and they said, how do you fancy getting together with the, the original band? band and doing a tv show and see where it goes from there you know uh and i literally thought for my first thought was no and then after a couple of hours i thought you know what if i don't do it now i'll probably never do it so i said okay let's do it and they said that's good because we've already spoken to everybody else and they want to do it so we got together we uh we did a couple of days rehearsal and then, you know, there was the TV show. 
um, which everything seemed fine. Um, the, we tried to gloss over any of the um, the the, the things that broke us up. Yeah, right. the things that broke us up in the first place. But uh, and the TV show was fine. And then we set up a bit of a tour, which we you know we played about six shows. And after about six shows, I was done with it personally. I just said, you know, this is not really what I want to do. So we stopped doing any shows. There was a couple of, um, you know, a couple of arguments. And I, I just basically went to myself the way it went in the beginning, the brokers up is starting to happen again. So I just said, no, I don't want to do it anymore. And I just kind of went off and did my own thing again. Yeah. And, and it worked out. So, so, and then, so we'll finish with this today. You know, we're 2018. The first album was 1982. The last album was 1995. Uh, why are we having this discussion? I mean, what is it about your music and, and the eighties and, and where we're, it is just endured and fans like myself and others, we're going to go to a, a, a Place Bell in, in Montreal in September to see this and, and folks still want to come out. What was it about just that time where music just captured something that 30 years, 40 years in some cases, we're still, we're still excited and we're still talking. Um, you know what, if I really knew what it was, I'd still be doing it. um i think i think with the image of the band and the time that it happened and the way it happened it it created something that that probably could never happen again so people that grew up in that era um they're going to see what excited them in the first place about the band or about the 80s even and i think uh, i i don't really like to say this, but I think music now is so dire that people are looking backwards and saying, wow, that must have been an incredible time. And I'm going to go to that. I think, uh, I think in the end, a lot of people um, finally listened to the songs and they went, you know what, this is good stuff. You know? And uh, I think there was, there was a time in the eighties. It seemed for us that people went, they're not a band, they're an image. And now finally they're getting to the point with the music when they're going, they're actually a band and they're a good band and they wrote great songs and the image covered that up. It really did. And, and I would very much agree with you. Cause I look, I look at the nineties music and you know, you look at the, at the, at the sort of heritage acts that are out there from the eighties and they're always selling a good time and a party for the lack of a better word. But there aren't really that many 90s packages out there because a lot of that music was all about life is tough and I'm not feeling good about my and, – and who wants to yeah. go through that, right? I mean it really was sort of dark and, and, and lugubrious and blah. But then you yeah, look to back. live through that once was enough. Right. But to live through the 80s is, you know, is like, yeah, I remember going out in the 80s and dressing up colorful and do my hair wild. And setting myself free, but in the '90s it was more like oh, I've got a black coat and a black hair, and it's, you know, and I'm not too excited about anything. Um, and I think these days music has gone even deeper into the rift. With uh, it's, it all sounds the same. I'm not saying everything's bad, but a lot of it is so uh, in rubber stamped. If you know what I mean. Yep, this sounds like that. This sounds like that. But 
and that's how they the the music industry has gone. Yeah, and I, I think, think they should let set bands free again and let them do what they want. And I think also back in the '80s there was an explosion of different genres. You went from new romantics to to new wave to heavy metal to hair metal to there was just all kinds of different stuff. And now we're sort of just well, there's 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 rap and there there's you know there's this and it's just like. Well, where you know what what differentiates you? Why, why am I going to be excited about this guy when that guy did it two days ago? You know, and yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, uh, it's, Mike, it's, yeah, it's all it's all copycat now. It, re- it really is, um, Mike. You know, a great pleasure. It's been way too long since we've done this. Uh, of course, the new album Ascension. Now, uh, from what you're saying, it'll be out at the end of June. So that's of June, I think. Yeah, yeah. And if not, I'll, I'll certainly tell the, the the listeners to keep an eye out for it. And that lost uh, 80s live show, I am going to be there in uh, Montreal, the, the, the Place Belle in Laval. And I encourage you to, to head over to the website and check that out and, and check out the, the tours coming to you. And it's going to be great. It's, it's just going to be a night of pure magic. And uh, thank yeah, you for and bringing everybody that. should do their hair like a flock of seagulls. <laughs> well, um, since I've got none, that's going to be real difficult. <laughs> like like the rest okay, of the crowd. I've got I've got none either now, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll come backstage and say hello, and we'll we'll I'll, we'll we'll put some wigs on for the night and just pretend that we're sixteen again. Uh, Mike, yeah, sounds great, good to me. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye bye. Cheers now. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Big, big thank you to Mike Score of the Flock of Seagulls. That show, of course, is coming to my part of the world on September 28th, which happens to be my mom's birthday, and I will be at Place Belle in Laval, Quebec. That is a show I have to see. When you put Flock of Seagulls with Wang Chung on the same bill and Men Without Hats, I just have to be there. Right, right, uh, Alan? You would have to be there, too, if you lived in Montreal. Uh Maybe, yeah, maybe. I'm not, depending on what's on TV. But uh, let us move over to our next guest. It is Kofi Baker, the son of Ginger Baker. It's my second interview with him in the last, I guess, eight months or so. So the first interview had all the dirty details about. But on this one, we talk in particular about the music of Cream, the 50th anniversary world tour featuring, of course, Kofi Baker, Ginger's son, Malcolm Bruce's. Uh, Malcolm Bruce, which is Jack's son, and Will Johns, who is Eric Clapton's nephew. And if you look at the posters, a little asterisk, and it says, by marriage. So there you go. That is going to be fun. Right? By, mar- by marriage. On yes. whose side? Um, that's an interesting qualification. You know, with this, the only qualification that I would like to uh, address is, guys, go out there and do them do that music proud. Because, yeah. my God... Cream were huge in their impact. They were only around for something like a year and a half, but they blew the walls down in terms of um, arrangement, in terms of just getting out there and flying, sonic surfing. Just huge band. I love that band. Um, yeah, so, so in fact, talk to me about that love. I mean, that... Is that sort of where you cut your teeth? I mean, the, the Beatles were very cute, and Elvis, of course, had the little, you know, the rock and roll thing and the hips and so on and so forth. But but Cream was sort of the musicians' musicians band, right? Is, is, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, uh, Oldham had set up the Rolling Stones to be the anti-Beatles, you know, the, the 
boys that your mother didn't want your girl girls to date. Um, but cream were, and of course there was an arrogance in the name because they saw themselves as that, were the Musicians Musicians Band. And they just created these incredible sonic waves of blues rock that were just absolutely astounding and blew open the way people approached writing songs in a big way. Um, just an amazing impact on, Did, on, on, on rock and roll. Did you ever see them live? No, I never saw them live. Uh, I only got to see um, the uh, film of um, them playing the Royal Albert Hall. Um, and I actually sat down with my mother and watched that. And she got up and had a slightly different viewpoint about rock and roll after she'd seen it. She said, my God, these people can actually play. She was stunned to watch um, Ginger Baker uh, just sitting, talking to an interviewer, and playing his drums at the same time and playing different paradiddles and so on. And it blew her mind. Um, but there's a, there's a lovely story about that. I mean, obviously from Cream, um, Eric left and wanted to form a band with Steve Winwood. And it's, it's no secret that there was a, a volatile trio was Cream and that Ginger is a character in capital letters. And Eric basically wanted to get away from Ginger. He just couldn't deal with him anymore. So he goes down to Steve Winwood's house in the Cotswolds and they start writing together. And Ginger gets wind of this, puts his drums in his car, drives out to Steve Winwood's house, walks in, sets up his drums and says, right, boys, let's go. And of course, neither of them had the balls to turn around and tell him to leave. And that's how Ginger walked into Blind Faith, which was being created to give Clapton a way of getting away from Ginger. So uh, that's that story I just love. Did you, back about five or six years ago, they put out a documentary called Beware of Mr. Baker that sort of explores that volatile side and, and, and that, that kookiness, for the lack of a better word. Did you ever see that, that documentary? Oh, yes. Uh, that, that's an absolute must-watch for anybody who's into music at all, is do watch this documentary on Ginger. It, it's it's a, a, a riot. And... and Correct me if I'm wrong, and, and, and I've been wrong before, um, just ask my wife, but the ethos of Cream, of not really having a set set list and, and taking jams to wherever they were going each night and being organic and being somewhat different, it's sort of what Guns N' Roses ended up doing, right? I mean, you, you, I mean, a show back in the day for, for GNR had an organic feel where songs were called out and they were moved and... Right, I mean, there was there was a bit of a same thing going there. Yeah, it's it's that magical determination to be of the moment and in the moment, and it's you know one of the things that Axel really tries hard to do, and of course you know the bigger the show, the bigger the stadium, and the more lighting cues and that you've got to you know the more the you're imprisoned in a structure of we play this song after that song after that song. But in every musician's heart, or in, maybe we should say in every artist's heart, there's a desire 
and a self-inflicted obligation to try and be of the moment and in the moment. Um, I describe management as being the responsibility of providing the spontaneous on demand. And rock and roll at its best has a moment within it that is absolutely of that moment and is unrepeatable. And and Cream definitely brought that to the table in spades. And yeah, GNR, I think still to this day, try and call an audible every now and then. Um, you know, because how do you keep it real when you sing the same song night after night? I know, and and it's it's just amazing when you look back at a back at a band like Cream that they did all of what they were doing with no backing tapes. Now you can't go to a show without backing tapes running all night, and it, it's it's just like, ugh, can we get back to to the real? to the real music. Now, you have worked, of course, with Mark Kendall. You have worked, of course, with Slash, two of the greatest, and Chris Buck, by the way, who's the next generation, up and coming. What was it about Eric Clapton uh, that made him so unique and so special? His fingers, okay. his fluidity, his um, willingness to take a risk. Um, I call it sonic surfing, you know, and... The better you are, the more likely you are to get up on that wave and why ride that wave all the way in. But occasionally, you fall off the wave. But that's part of the beauty of letting something flow through you and letting the energy of your music maybe to be informed by something more, um, something, something of the human spirit that just makes it unpredictable and beautiful and riveting. And Clapton had that ability to be riveting at times. Yeah, he really did. Now, so and so. And, and and you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned Curly, you mentioned Slash. Um, I know for a fact that, especially with his own band, and in certain moments, GNR. That's the point and the purpose of him being on the stage, as far as he's concerned. He's looking for that moment of being unrepeatable and completely of that particular gig and that particular song and that particular moment. He doesn't want to play the same thing twice when he's stretching. And he, you know, he, he likes to go on, on little journeys. And, and we've said this many times in the last six months. Seven, he's playing the best he has played, I think, in his career. It, Absol- absolutely, without a doubt. It, Unquestionably. Um, it, you know, I've known him since he was what nineteen. Um, you know, he was he was a good and promising guitar player when he was nineteen, twenty. Um, now he's got magic. Oh yeah, he really does. And and we've yeah. said this for the last two years as well. Those Chinese democracy songs with Slash playing sound like Guns N' Roses all of a sudden. It it really is that simple. It was that it was just missing the salt. The, the songs need a little bit of seasoning, and Slash is it. Well, yeah, you, you and I could spin off into a right. digression here because, but, uh, you know, the structures of the songs, all right, they sound like you think Guns N' Roses should sound, and that's obviously a reference back to the Appetite for Destruction and Lies bands. Um, but without Izzy's sense of rhythm and without Izzy's concise streetwise lyric and content, I think you're missing something. Well, I agree. 
I agree. And and what we need to do is get Izzy on the show and have this discussion with him and have him explain how he puts songs together. Wouldn't that be smart? I think that would be brilliant. Uh, I, I think it would be brilliant. I would say good luck. I'd say you've got a better <laughs> chance of getting Izzy to do an interview if you're talking about mountain bikes. Well, hey, I'll, whatever it takes. But uh, the music of Cream, by the way, the 50th anniversary uh, North American tour starts September 28th in Ottawa, Ontario. See, my mom has choices for her birthday this year. She can either go see the 80s show in Montreal or um, Cream in, in Ottawa. And it runs all the way through November 16th at, at Bogarts in Cincinnati, Ohio. So make sure you catch one of those shows. But for now, let us catch Kofi Baker talking about the music of Cream. We are speaking with uh, Kofi Baker. The uh, new tour, the tour coming up this fall, is the Music of Cream 50th Anniversary World yes, Tour. Yes, 50th Anniversary, yeah. and I'll be 50 next year, so there you go. There you go, and it includes, of course, uh, Malcolm Bruce, which is Jack Bruce's son, and Will John's, Eric Clapton's nephew. And I like how the, how it's in parentheses, by marriage. So By marriage only, yeah. By marriage only. So let, let's hope they, they stay married for, for, for at least... <laughs> till the end of the tour um but let's talk about this tour talk to me about getting the this i mean i know in the past when we spoke and you said this is not a cover band this is our own thing so so talk to me about putting it together and and the essence of it and the spirit of it and, and what are folks going to see well with the 50th anniversary it's going to be all cream like with my band i play uh, you know, various other types, but the 50th anniversary will be all the cream stuff. Um, so yeah, you're going to basically see all the cream. Obviously we're going to be doing a lot of jamming and the whole, um, you know, the whole thing about it is to the whole jam band thing, which cream started. So, um, that's what I'm trying to bring back to the, the kids. So I'm hoping there'd be some young people there too, because, you know, this is the beginning of the jam band stuff. Cream was one of the first, if not the first band to do those heavy jams and just go off for like 10 minutes on a jam. Um, now you've got all the bands like fish and you know, all those other I, grateful dead was pretty early. I think with that stuff, but I think cream beat them. I think. Yeah, they probably did. Um, we'll, we'll say that just because it's, it, yes, it sounds better. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah, cream was what? 67. I think they started yeah. 66 cause they broke up in 68 so 66, yeah. So because um, Blind Faith was uh, 69 when I was born. Um, so, yeah, I think they were I mean, they were the first band to do that heavy jamming because I know my dad would say like, you know, there was there was like, what, eight, four by 12s on one side of him and eight, four by 12s on the other side of him. And he would be playing his ass off and couldn't hear himself, you know, because back then you didn't have monitors and, you know, probably had like two or three mics on the kit. So uh, they were like the first heavy jam jam band to do that kind of stuff so we're probably not going to have four four by 12s each side of us um but you never know we might i mean i, I don't know <laughs> see what happens see how much we can fit in the tour bus when you when you do these the jams on the on this tour are they are you going to sort of look back at old video and old tape and old recordings and and sort of try to recapture and redo what your dad and, and what jack and, and eric were doing or are these going to be fully improvised? Uh, oh, fully improvised, yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously I do. I've been looking back now because I've been doing my Kofi Baker's Psychedelic Trip for a long time, or what I called it before that was Kofi Baker's Cream Experience. 
Um, and I basically never really listened to the jams. I just listened to, you know, we'd listen to a song to learn it, you know, and that would, that would be it. But the jams would be like our own thing. I mean, I, I did jams with, um, I played with Mike Keneally from Zappa's band. And um, that was nowhere near like Cream when we jammed. It was more like Zappa jamming. Um, so the jams have always been depending on who I have in my band to where they go. And there's no, um, you know, no one says, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. It's basically just, you know, when you're jamming like cream did, you have your ears open. I mean, Eric Clapton was really, if you watch on those videos, which I've been watching recently, he's like glued to my dad and watching my dad. And, and the drummer is really the conductor of, of when you're jamming, the drummer's the conductor. You watch the, it starts from the drummer um, and then you kind of follow the drummer and the bassist and the guitar player, put melodies to the rhythms, but you follow the drummer. And that's what Cream kind of did, because Cream was my dad's band. He put it together. So he was leading a lot of those jams and leading it all. So same thing with this is going to be the same way. It's going to be, um, you know, we're just going to go in there and just improvise our asses off um, and just, you know, obviously play the songs. I mean, the songs are going to be slightly different too. I mean, we don't, I don't play exactly like my dad. Um, and I don't really want to play exactly like my dad because that would be stupid. My dad's already done it. So um, obviously my dad taught me. So I play the same, you know, I have the same influences. I play the same way, but I have my own style to it. So it's pretty much going to be, um, you know, balls to the walls, jamming, um, and see where it goes. And it's going to be different every night. So everybody has to come to every show on the tour. That's what I think. They're just going to have to follow us around in their own bus. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Now, in terms of your playing style, how, how um, I don't want to say how do you compare it to your dad, but are you trying to sort of, of, of give it the same feel, or do you really have your own unique style that will give these songs a, a fresh approach? Well, I definitely have my own feel and definitely going to do uh, – it's going to be a little bit different. But like I said, I'm listening to a lot of the Cream stuff now because I'm more of a complex drummer than my dad. Um, you know, I grew up listening to more fusion and jazz and I mean, my dad was a jazz player, but I was more into the fusion, you know, the zapper and that kind of stuff. So, um, so I'm having to listen to it now. I'm thinking, simplify myself a little bit to, um, give it more of that, um, authenticness of what it was about at the time. So, um, I'm probably going to simplify myself a little bit to, to play it more like my dad. But again, I don't really play like my dad. So it's, it's, um, I mean, I do and I don't, it's, it's half and half. So there's going to be, it's not going to be exactly like cream. It's going to be a little bit more of our own touch to it. Malcolm does sound like Jack, but, um, he definitely plays a little bit different and will, um, learn from Eric Clapton, uh, at the beginning, but he's, you know, and he's more of a blues player. So it's probably going to be really close. I mean, we haven't really, we played Australia last year, but we had Glenn Hughes and Robin Ford with us. So um, it was a different influences in the thing. We didn't really, we haven't really had a chance for me, Will and Malcolm to sit down and actually do a whole show by ourselves. So this will be interesting to see what happens. And obviously, since I live in America and Malcolm and Will live in England, we don't really get together. So it will be getting together a couple of weeks before the uh, tour starts and putting it together there. So I'm not really sure how it's going to sound until we, we do it. It's going to be uh, 
Oh, it's going uh, to be fresh yeah. cream, as they say. Uh, so, right, yeah. So so talk to me about the band, though, because here we are. You know, the last album came out in 69, first album in 66. It's been over 50 years. Uh, folks like Howard Stern still talk about the band and Disraeli Gears as being one of the greatest albums ever. What was it particularly about this band that has maintained the interest over these four albums and over 50 years, what is it specifically about the band that folks just can't get enough of? Well, I think it was the, the freshness of the whole idea. It was the beginning, like I said, it was the beginning of the jam band era. Um, so, and, and that kind of, and good musicianship is, is, you can't date it. You know, when you get good musicians, like my dad was one of the best drummers around at the time. Um, Eric was one of the best guitar players. You know, and Jack was definitely one of the best bass players. I mean, there was other, you know, there was Hendrix around. But, you know, you got three of the, the best musicians of the time getting together and uh, basically jamming and just doing their stuff. And that's what I think is, is timeless about it. What What's kept it, you know, going was, and the songs were great. Really, really good songs. I mean, they were kind of trying to be a bit more poppy because my dad came from jazz and Jack was really jazz. Eric was a real blues player, so they kind of, from what I understand from talking to my dad when he was talking to me, was um, that they would, they actually made a decision to be more commercial, to actually do a more commercially viable thing, but they wanted to still, you know, have their musicianship. So I think that merge of that commercial music and the musicianship is was really unique. And um, no one's really done it since. I mean, people have done it a little bit. I mean, um, but no one's really taken that, that, that essence that they did was like completely just, you know, jam, improvise, completely just improvise on the spot and then go into back into a song that was like people could understand. But that was the great thing. It was if you listen to the tunes, they're like jazz tunes, like jazz tune had a head and everybody took a solo. I mean, you listen to like, you know, um, I'm so glad or something. It's basically a head, a jam, and then back to the head. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And uh, that's what I love about it, too. And that's what I think people, you know, still love is the fact that it had that, it had that freshness of something that had never been done before. And no one's really touched on it since. So that's why um, I think it's really exciting me, Malcolm, and Will getting together and doing this tour because we're going to bring that whole thing back. And hopefully, you know, it will bring it back into the forefront of music and you won't get these bloody pop bands that just play the same every night and have that tapes behind them. And I mean, it's, and they do a whole dance, you know, show to, to make it interesting. To me, if you can close your eyes and it still be really fantastic, you know, that's the great thing, you know, um, you know, nowadays it seems like you have to have so much more visual stimulation because the music's so boring. I agree, um, Th- though I'm disappointed that there'll be no dancers. I was going to audition, oh. so, which, which is which was shameful. Um, but once you do this tour, though, do you think that you, Malcolm and Will, might record or might, if not put out a studio album, at least put some kind of live compilation or DVD well, or something? Well, we're trying to do that okay. now. Um, we're trying to put a studio album together now. Um, it's, it's kind of taking a little bit of time because everybody's kind of doing their own thing, but, um, we're trying to do that before the show. So there'll be an album out with, you know, a couple of, or two or three originals on it because we all write originals. The problem is, is trying to write originals in that same 
kind of vein of cream because um, we, we all write very different music and it's like we're all picking songs and it's like, well, it's a great song, but it's not very cream-like. So we're, trying, we're having a hard time trying to, to, to write that kind of style of music. That's, that's the problem. It's, it's, you know, we're all writing more modern kind of, you know, stuff. And, and, but we're still, we're working on it. We're working on trying to make songs, you know, pick songs that are more cream, cream vibe. Because right. they definitely had a vibe. I mean, they, they had a, you know, a real strong vibe. You could tell it was a cream song. Well, okay, you know, well, so. well, talk to me about the challenges then of making your own original music because you are Ginger Baker's son. You are you have done, uh, you know, the, the cream experience over the last few years. Have you tried much to, 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 to be out be out there and just be Kofi and, and do your own thing? Or, or is it just sort of too tempting to stick to the cream? Well, no, I mean, I never did the cream stuff until 2005. I was always doing original. I was in a band called Ohm, which was Chris Poland from Megadeth. From Megadeth, yeah. Yeah, um, Robbie Pagliari was six-string bass player from L.A. We were like the the best fusion band in L.A. We played the baked potato once a month or twice a month. And, and you gave me um, a great quote the last time we spoke. You said it was fun working with Chris, but he was a little too high stress for me. Yeah, well, that's because the music was, I mean, I was thinking back on that music and it was so intense. I was talking to my girlfriend about it. About um, I, met, um, I met up with the drummer from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Chad Smith. Great. And we were doing we were doing the uh, 40th anniversary at the Baked Potato, and Vinnie Caluda was playing, and like so there was some great musicians playing. And I was talking to Chad, and I was talking about yeah we gotta we gotta play, and it's like this music's so complex. It's like I'm constantly have to have to think about everything I do. And he's like, you know what? If I have to think about it, I'm not having fun. You know, I like to play music where it's simple and I can relax. And I was thinking, you know what? I agree with that. I'm like, so Chris is so high. We're all so highly strung because we were playing on our edge of our ability. The songs were written. So, so we were basically as, as the best we could do, you know, we were right on the edge of our ability. So it was really stressful because we were like all just like barely just falling off our instruments, you know? So it was like, I mean, it was kind of fun. I mean, people used to say they really loved it because it sounded like we were just on the edge of falling, you know, of collapsing but it was you know you can't keep doing that when you get older because it's really stressful so um i started doing the cream stuff so i've always done original stuff you know uh, jonas helborg malvishna orchestra with sean lane we did that album uh back in what was that 95 or something um so i was doing all this original music and it was you know obviously it was fusion so i didn't have a huge market um and it was it was okay, but you know the, the only thing was all the shows was all guys. Only guys come to fusion. You don't get any women coming to fusion gigs. Nope, total um, sausage so, fest. Right. So I mean, I started doing the cream stuff, and I was like, wow. It's like not only is it really easy to play because all you have to do is you know get smashed out of your head and and have fun, but it's it's there's women showing up and they're dancing and everybody's dancing around and having a great time, and I was like. This is this is the way I want to go. So I haven't looked back. I've really just, you know, been doing the cream stuff for the past, what is it now? It's 10, 15 years or something, 2005. Yeah, it's like nearly like 13 years or something I've been doing this. Um, and I've just had a great time doing it. Um, 
So I still write originals. I'm still doing my my original thing, but you know, I just love playing the cream stuff so much that it's just so much fun to do. So I've been kind of doing that, but I'm going to get back into it. I'm writing an album with my cousin, actually my sister's, my dad's sister's kid's kid. He's like 25, 24 years old and he's in London. He's really good. So we're doing an album together of original stuff and he's kind of got that hippie kind of jam sound. So it's coming out really good. So I'm still doing the originals. I'm writing originals and working on it, but I'm having such a blast playing this cream stuff. And it's so much fun that it's kind of, you know, taken over my life a little bit, which is good because, you know, um, Will emailed Eric about this whole by marriage thing only um, because, you know, uh, he had to get Eric's approval of, you know, using the nephew part on the, on the promo. And Eric was like, yeah, it's fine. You use it, but just use it by marriage, you know, say by marriage only. And he, he wrote him a really nice email saying, it's great that you're flying the flag of cream because we can't do it anymore. And it's good to, you know, have you keep doing it. And that's kind of, it's kind of cool. Cause it's kind of like, it's a family. It's, it's our family that we're doing. We're keeping the music of our family going. Me, Malcolm, obviously direct family from Jack and Ginger. So, I think that's kind of my, I think it's, it's, it's expected of me. And I think I should do that. It's like keeping, it's like a son of, you know, when a, a father has an art or something, pottery or anything, and the son takes over and keeps that line going. That's how I'm looking at it now is that I'm keeping what my dad created, which is a really cool thing. Um, and I want to keep it going as long as I can go. I don't have any kids, but yeah. as long as I can just, fly the flag until I, I can't fly it anymore. At least, you know, I'm going to keep my whole, what my dad started going as long as I can. So I think that's, to me, it's kind of like my, um, my calling in a way. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of what I should be doing. I should just definitely keep that, you know, keep that music strong and keep it out there. So I'm really happy with this tour because I think it's, it's going to be a great tour and we're, we're going to get to, blast this great music out there and have a good time doing it oh i agree now of course uh, disraeli gears is to many one of the greatest albums of all time do you ever see yourself doing a, a full album show where you play disraeli gears from from top to bottom well i mean that could be done i mean maybe you know next tour or something we can probably talk about that i think the main thing with cream is that i don't think I mean, when they got together in 2005, they were a lot more, um, you know, formatted. They had a set list and all that kind of stuff. But when they were doing it back in the day, they had no set list. They just kind of just kind of called it out as they did it. And they didn't really. And so there wasn't really a set of how to do it. It's just they did it how they felt it. And that's what I think. There's definitely this first tour is going to be that kind of thing. Um, but later on, maybe we might, we might do that kind of stuff. I, I think there's some tunes. I know I feel free is one that they never played live. Um, there's some tunes they never played live because there was too many backing vocals and stuff. So it's going to be hard to try and, I mean, I don't know what tunes are on that album. I've forgotten, but, um, you know, I mean, and there's some other tunes that my dad wrote, like, um, um, well, Press Rat's the one I do, right. but uh, the other one, Blue Condition, Blue Condition is a tune right. he wrote. Um, 
and I haven't really worked that one out. I don't know what albums that one's on. It is on Disraeli Gears. Oh, it is. Okay, yes, yeah. So I'd have to work out that song. You see? Um, yeah. So, so let me talk to you quickly then about your dad, because of course there was there was a documentary called "Beware of Mr. Baker." Rolling Stone right. wrote an article called "The The Devil and Ginger Baker." Eric Clapton right. has has said that it's a confrontational situation. Twi- I, and of course, you're, you you you've had your own strained relationship. Yeah. What is it about your dad that that he just sort of and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he just can't get along with people. What 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 sort well, of the what's the problem? Well, um, I think from what I can understand from my mum, she said he wasn't always like that. She said the combination of being a heroin addict um, and the fame made him um, just kind of like, and you know, obviously he was a huge heroin addict and he was, you know, then became so famous that people were like, oh, you're God and all this kind of stuff. And I think it just went to his head. I think it just, it just, he just lost reality, uh, lost touch with reality. And, and that's what I think, because I grew up obviously when he was, you know, you know, past the height of his fame. So he'd been really famous, you know, and, and so I kind of saw, that whole thing. And my mom would be like, you can't act like, you know, an egotistical rock star when you come home, you can do that on stage, but drop the act or drop it when you come home. And he couldn't, I don't think he could find that, that line between the two. It just, it just merged together and it became him. So that's what I think it is. I mean, he's just so difficult to get along with. I mean, right now he can't hear. So if I call him up, it's pointless. It's like shouting down the phone and he can't even hear what I'm saying anyway. So it's kind of really hard to have a, you know, communicate with him. But he's just he's just a weird, weird guy. I mean, growing up with him was just outrageous. It was like, you know, the things he did was just just outrageous. I mean, the stories I could tell, it's just you couldn't make this stuff up. It's ridiculous. Um so well, I, don't well know. I mean, some of the stories you told me in the past were, were that he had blown all his money and you, you ended up living on the streets by the age of 14. I mean, right, but not only that, just the things right. like blowing himself up, lighting, lighting fires, stufas, you know, um, that was just a heating system in Italy when we lived in Italy. And just like the whole like, you know, running out of gas and and making me hold the uh, paper funnel while he's pouring gas in it with a cigarette in his mouth. You know, things like that are just like, you just think back at these things and you think, my God, does he just not think about what's going on? I don't think he does. I think he just, he just goes. I mean, I say that in the documentary, there's something he taught me very young. He said, you know, he who hesitates is lost. You know, basically if you put your, if you go for something, go for it. Don't hesitate, just go for it. And I think that's his life. I think he just doesn't think about any consequences of what he's doing, just does it. There's no kind of, you know, okay, if I do this, this is going to happen. It's just like, I'm just going to do it and then see what happens. As, so, as time moves on, though, do you want to, to, to reconcile with him and, and, and say, let's, let's just – I'm trying. I'm trying right now. I'm going to still write him emails and say, Dad, come on. Look, you know, we're getting old. I don't know how long you have left. Let's try and, you know, let's try and get along. But um, I don't know. You see, he's, he's got this wife that's kind of weird. Um, so, and I, from the emails I've seen, she, she wants the family out because from what I understand, she's all about the money. Uh, she just wants to, you know, 
him to die and take the money. Um, so I think she's kind of, you know, distancing, you know, making, making us not talk to him. Um, I mean, I'm not sure, but it just seems like that's what's going on. Um, because sometimes when I send emails, I know it's not him that's sending the email back. Um, so I don't know if he's even getting my emails, but, um, I'm trying, I'm still trying because it's, you know, it would be great for me and my dad to, you know, get along for a little bit, you know, especially as he's what he's going to be 79 in August. He's, yeah. he's, he's getting old. So, um, and he's, he hasn't really looked after himself. So I don't know how long he's, he's got left. Um, I mean, he had that heart condition recently, he just, just got yeah. out of the hospital a week ago with, um, uh, something like a flu kind of thing or something. And when you get that kind of stuff, when you get old, it's really hard to recover. Has he, by the way, ever commented on your drumming? Has he seen you or heard you and, and said, hey, that was good, or hey, you need to be better? I mean, ha has he sort of been a coach or a mentor or, or even yeah, a critic? I mean, when I was really young, I went to see him in Italy when I was 14, and I played by feel. I didn't really learn my technique. I mean, I'd learned my rudiments, but I hadn't really studied you know technique too much and he said to me he said you know you've got a great field you've got to get your technique together you've got to practice all this stuff and he wrote out all these pieces of paper and all this practice stuff that like i took home to england and i sat there for eight hours a day working on it and working on it and then i saw him like six years later and i was like now look what i can do and he was like now you've got too much technique you need to drop some technique and just play by feel again and it's like what the hell i can't make this guy happy so um it's it's always been he's always yeah kind of could tweak my playing um like no you need to do this and no you need to do that and hi-hat two and a four you know do this and play it like that and then i'm like so i've always kind of tried to make him happy but but now i'm kind of like you know i just play you know i like to put my hi-hat on the beat rather than off the beat because it, it's you know, I can play it both ways. I was working the other night. I was doing exercises and making sure that I can put my hi-hat up on the upbeat and the downbeat. But on the downbeat, it just has more – it's just more understandable to the audience because they can hear where the note is. I mean, yes, the upbeat's got that swing, but more people are into rock than are into jazz. So downbeat seems to be more popular for people to know where the downbeat is. So he's always can tweak. He's always, you know, told me about my playing, do this and do that. And I've listened to him a lot. Um, now I'm kind of, you know, I kind of take what he's learned me, but I kind of do it the way I want to do it and, and play it the way I want to play it. So so now I don't really care what he says. He can say anything he wants. It's just like, you know, I'm going to play it my way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely keeping the Ginger Baker thing going because I'm definitely playing all of your riffs. I just want to play him with a little bit of my own, you know, Flair, meaning. I don't, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the students he's taught, when I was in Italy and he was teaching a kid, the kid had his kit set up exactly the same as my dad because my dad had said, look, this is how you set your kid up, how you play, you hold your sticks like this. And it was like, it's a copy of Ginger Baker. I don't want to be a copy of Ginger Baker. I want to be me. I'm already blood. I'm already, you know, his son. So I'm obviously going to have that thing, but... But it's like, you know, I need to keep up with the times and and um, drumming has progressed a lot, you know, since those days. I mean, the whole sound of drumming has progressed, um, you know, has changed. I mean, back then you didn't have 10 or even 8-inch toms. You know, now drummers, I have an 8 and a 10 on my kit. Even my dad has a 10-inch tom on his kit now. 
Um, so drum sizes have changed, you know, um, a lot of, you know, drums have got deeper bass drums back then were like 14, you know, inches deep. I mean, a 16 inch deep was like, what the hell? That's like a huge kick drum. Now everything's 18 inch deep or 20 inch deep. So drums, you know, drums have evolved. So everything's kind of evolving. So it'd be stupid not to, to put that in with, the old style of how he played and, and that stuff in there. Well, it's good to give it a, a contemporary edge as well. Now, of course, the music of Cream 50th anniversary does start in Ottawa on uh, September 28th. It runs all the way to November 16th in Cincinnati, Ohio at Bogarts. Um, just real quick, fr- from your perspective, uh, growing up with, in the in the in that environment and stuff, how do you sort of look at Eric Clapton both uh, as a person and also as a musician? Because the, the, the argument of he's the greatest guitarist ever has, has come up. How right. Do you, how do you look at, at Eric in terms of his style and his playing? Well, again, the greatest guitar player in music, it's like in art. You know, you can't really say the greatest. Art is very subjective. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's really... You know, um, I mean, I think he, he was one of the greatest guitar players at the time, for sure. I mean, he definitely, you know, made people, um, you know, he definitely took guitar and did something with it that people are still trying to copy today. Um, so I would say, yeah, he was one of the one of the greatest guitar players of the time. Same with my dad. I would say my dad was one of the greatest drummers of the time. But there's there's all kinds of other musicians out there. So it's hard to say. Was he the greatest guitar, or is he the greatest guitar player? Um, but he certainly got something unique in in, in what he does. I mean, oh yeah, and he had that perfect timing. I mean, his timing was immaculate. I mean, it was I you know I watched some of those Cream stuff, and he was like just nailing it with my dad. And his timing, he had definitely had the feel. I mean, musicians, you know, you either have it or you don't. I think in terms of like the feel. Um, you can learn, you can learn to be a musician, no matter if you have the feel or not, but some people just have that, that feel and that, that sense. Steve Marriott was one of those people that I worked with when I was a kid. And he was like, he had this presence and this feeling on stage that when you played with him, it kind of carried you along. It kind of like, like playing with a really good musician. It's like, it, it becomes really easy. When you're playing with musicians that aren't that great, it's real struggle. You're really working to, to, to make it sound good and you're really having to really work hard. And then you play with these musicians like Steve Marriott and the, some of the great players I've played with, you know, Sean Lane and these great guitar players. I, I, would, I would argue Uli John Roth as well. I know, I know the tour Uli, didn't go. Yeah, oh no, Uli John Roth is the same way Fantastic. when I played with him. He had this. He has this feel, and I was like sitting there on stage playing with him, and I was just almost laughing because it was just, it was such a great feel. I mean, it was extremely loud, but but he just had this. They had this feel. They had this feel, and it it captures you, and it it brings you in their bubble, and it 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 feels really good. So Eric definitely had that. You know, he was one of the guys that definitely had that. Uli, you know, playing with Uli definitely had that. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's hard to say the greatest, but he definitely had Eric. Definitely had all of them. They definitely had that feel, and that's what was great about Cream was it was, you know, three of the best musicians of the time, jamming their asses off. Yeah, and I think is, that's, you know, that's that's what we're going to see on the uh, the music of Cream 50th anniversary. 
I will personally be at the uh, Montreal show on September 29th at the Corona Theatre. You are going to absolutely love that venue. It was built, I believe, in 1904 or 1911. It's like 100 and something years old. It's it's wow. just it's gorgeous. It is just absolutely gorgeous, and the sound is great. There's no backstage to speak of. You're, there's like a, 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 a you know a hallway the size of a rat, but but okay. out front, gorgeous. <laughs> oh, great. Well, I mean, we don't need much of a backstage. We just need a place to you know uh, sit before the gig, I suppose. Um, I kind of like talking to the audience and being out front anyway. I normally walk out front before the show and talk to a few people and soak up the vibe anyway. So, you know, um, if you see me milling around, you know, come up to me and say hi, you know, anybody out there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, you'll, you'll love that. The, the, whole, the whole area is just gorgeous. Uh, Kofi, always, always a pleasure. We did it once last year. Now we're talking again. And hopefully it won't be another year till we do a, another one of these. But uh, – yeah, well, I'll see you in Montreal. September. Yes, sir. Right, so that would be great, yeah. And uh, thank you. Thank you for everything. Oh, thank you. It'd be great. All right, thanks. Cheers. Great. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to Kofi Baker. Do make sure to check out that tour that is coming through your town probably this fall at some point. But, uh, Alan, welcome back. We are into our... Um, Radiohead uh, portion of the show, right? I mean, that's what we're going to talk about. Do you, do you like that band by any chance? Uh, listen, everybody has their opinions. Um, and I've got a pretty wide and eclectic and accepting taste. But I've got to tell you, Radiohead, I don't get. I mean, them and Coldplay are two bands that I know they're trying hard. But sometimes you need to succeed at what you're doing rather than just try hard. I, I can't connect with either of them. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, radio, not Radiohead, um, Coldplay, when they first got their start years and years ago, I had a chance to interview them. And at the time, the, the record company were like, oh, you have to interview this new band, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they they went on to, be, to become this big, big thing. But I'm with you. I would rather talk about some other band. Um, any suggestions on who we could maybe talk about? Maybe... Um, uh- I don't know. Oh, I, Berlin I don't know. Again? I've been, I, I've been uh, you know, here, are, here we are 30 years on, and I'm getting emails and interview requests to talk about a band I used to work with in, in, a, in a different millennia. Um, it's amazing that they're still in people's consciousness and they're still out there. Um, which yeah. says something about the power of their music from way back when. Um, but we could talk about Guns N' Roses again. If you we, want to. Well, we could. So, so let's <laughs> let's get caught up on all the GNR stuff. First of all, uh, I do have an interview uh, with with the band coming up in well, however long this is going to take. So, five minutes, ten minutes. But Stephen Adler has been out and about, uh, finishing or out in the boot, as we say in Canada. Um, finished a tour in Australia, which from all the a friend rev- of mine went to see the uh, last rehearsal before he did a, a show in L.A. And my friend told me that the vibe was fabulous, that Stevie played his ass off and thorough, was thoroughly enjoying himself, and that the singer that he got was credible. Um, so power to you, Stevie. Go yeah. out there and have some fun. Yeah, knock him dead. Um, but, but no, the Australia shows, though, the reviews are, are exactly what your friend described. 
folks seem to have had a great time. Folks seem to have loved it. Folks seem to have thought he's playing as good as you can expect him to play. And 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 I, I know that this sounded like a backhanded compliment. That's not what it meant. But he's yeah. So. Hopefully he will come back to North America and do some few dates here. There is now. I'm going to ask you about this. They have it's, this. Stevie, Stevie's a joyful puppy, and if he's out there bouncing around with a smile on his face, I'm really happy for him. Yeah, so am I. So, but I'm going to ask you about this, and maybe you can clarify because I don't have any proof. But they have this Appetite for Destruction locked and loaded edition that cost $87,000 or, or something like that. Um, but they have a single out there, Shadow of Your Love. Stevie. By the, by yeah. the way, it's going to cost more because Canada is going to put a tariff on it and Trump is going to put a tariff on it. So don't be surprised if instead of $1,000, it suddenly shoots up to being $1,500. Well, they, they, they were talking about a uh, soft lumber tariff being slapped on so since it is in a wood box you, you might actually not be so wrong about that but but shadow of your love came out as as the first single if, if that's i mean is it really a single i mean the first song that people got to, to sample i guess stevie or steven went on record saying yeah i don't think that's me playing drums on it uh i've talked to a couple of other people who said yeah you know I, he, we changed the drums. Is, is that well, just a, rumor? According to Tom Zutout, who's heard the track, uh, he thinks Stephen was replaced too. And now you were there for those, or, or you know, you heard these tapes back in the day. W would you know why? Was the playing, was it sonically just not ready for 2018? Was the playing, you know, misguided and, and terrible? Like, why do you think that would happen if it did happen? Because we're, we're sort of playing on, well, we heard somebody say that, right? We, we can't. Well, let's get a clear perception here. Right. A box set is basically historical. And I think the whole point of putting a box set of the past together is to present the past as it was. And, you know, as far as was it perfect or not, Stevie dropped a clunker in Paradise City and no one notices. In 30 years, no one notices. You know, um, it's not about perfection. It's about the feel. It's about the moment, here's that word again, the moment that was there at that time. And if you're going to put out the past, then put out the past as it actually was. I agree with that. And I have to say, I, I did pre-order the box set. I'm still going to let the order go through. But I, I, I do have to admit that if, if that's true, it's taken a little bit of the shine off for me. Uh, for me personally, not as the rock reporter or what... As Mitch LaFon, GNR fan for 30 years, I, I want these songs, but I want them the way they were because that, that really is, to me, the point. Don't Well, the, <laughs> other, the other thing is this. Is it, you know, I am not a fan of the concept of the box set as presented by GNR. I'm really uncomfortable about the pricing of it. I think that suggests that somebody's lost the plot somewhere because in my book... Guns N' Roses were definitely a blue-collar and working-class entity, and that was part of their power and beauty. Um, so to be pricing something at rodeo drive prices 
tells me that somebody's kind of lost sight of how they managed to end up in Malibu in the first place, um, you know, which is a shame. And But, you know, it's all, all good and well to gripe, you know. We, we're all, we can all have a good gripe. How about suggesting something positive? And my positive suggestion is, you know what, guys? This is what you might have done. You played in Harlem in a theater. Why didn't you reconvene the original and actual Appetite band, play Appetite from top to bottom, and release that, and then if you wanted to make it a, a bigger um, release, add the marquee shows from 1987 that were recorded on the Rackmobile. And there's, there's something that honors the past, but does it in a contemporary way. I agree, but maybe on the marquee shows, they just didn't have time to go and redo all the parts because apparently they're redoing parts, right? <laughs> no, but yeah, joking aside, though, that to me would have been a great package, what you're suggesting. And I'm going to go a step further and say, I, I do want this package. I am buying it. I'm not bitching about that. But I think it should have been sort of the point final, the, the point at, at the end of the sentence where the sentence starts with, we did a tour, we did a new album, and now you've stuck around with us for two, three years on this cycle. Here's a little gift of all this old stuff. And it, I just don't like that they did reunion tour or, or reconvening tour, whatever the people want to call it, and then old stuff. And, you know, right? Should there not have been a new, at least, or at least one or two new songs recorded for the package? That would have been sweet, and it would have been even sweeter if they'd maybe worked on, you know, Izzy and Duff were in the studio together. Um, I'm fairly certain that so at a certain point that Curly went down to see what they were doing and maybe played with them. You know, take something from, from, from there. Um, even if you're not going to invite Izzy to be a part of his band, um, at least use his writing and come up with something cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 lots of missed opportunities here. Lots of missed opportunities. Incredible missed. I would have even been satisfied, and, and this is like the, the poor man's version of satisfied. Uh, take a couple of the Velvet Revolver songs and get Axel to put his voice on them. Take a couple of the Chinese Democracy and bring Izzy and Steven and, and Duff and, and recut them a, a, as the original band would have sounded doing you know, better or sorry, or, and just, uh, I don't know. But again, I'm buying the box set. I'm going to be more than happy to have it. I'm going to be more than happy to listen to it. But I just think there was some opportunity there that shoulda, coulda, would've, <laughs> you know. You know, instead of spending $1,000 on a box set that's of very questionable content and and purpose, I mean, do you really want disposable tattoos? I mean, come on. But instead of spending $1,000 on that, why don't you send $1,000 to a needy charity and really do something for the world? Well, yeah, that, that I, can, I, can, I can do both. I could still do but I, but I <laughs> But I'm not spending $1,000. I got the $183 sort of cheapy, expensive version. Listen, knickknacks and chotskis, and, and that, that ain't me. I have a yeah, lot of that stuff. And, and and while you're paying $180, I want you to keep one thing in mind, that you can print 
with a minimal cover, a CD for 80 cents. And if you're pressing vinyl, uh, and vinyl is always a smallish run these days. I mean, if somebody prints a thousand units, that's quite a big run for vinyl these days. Um, a vinyl pressing is only about a dollar. So just keep that in mind when yeah. you're looking at the price of these things. No, I know, I know. And and I'm looking at the at the stuff here. It says five GNR logo buttons, twelve illustration lithos visualizing each song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my closet is already full. I mean, I <laughs> and and I don't want to poo-poo the thing because I'm excited. I'm excited about guns. The 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 three shows I saw in the last two years were three of the best shows I've seen in my entire life. There's absolutely nothing I can complain about. But anyway, so we, we do have a member of GNR. He does talk. Oh, see, I said he, so already you know it's not Melissa. But he does talk about the possibility of new music. He does talk about uh, ACDC moving forward. He does talk about uh, the possibility of a live album from the Not In This Lifetime tour. So that's kind of exciting. I, I would like to see it. I, you know. Well, let's move on to the interview because yes. that will be cool for the fans. It will be, but I'm going to ask you one last thing. Uh before we recorded this, a little video clip of GNR, I believe it was in Berlin, sound-checking Slither from Velvet Revolver with Axel on vocals appeared on the internet. And, of course, the internet broke and went batshit over it. What do you think of the possibility of this GNR lineup pulling out one, two, three uh, Velvet Revolver songs and, and performing them? Well, I think it would be appropriate because, you know, in certain respects, and I know there are those who don't enjoy me saying this, but in certain respects, I look at this um, reconvening as Velvet Roses because to me, and I have to say it, it's not Guns N' Roses. Um, for me... The last show that Guns N' Roses played was April the 7th in 1990 um, at Farm Aid. Um, and fundamentally, Guns N' Roses, as it is billed today, are absolutely living off what was created in 86 and 87 and 88. And if you're doing that, and if you've got Duff up there and you've got Slash up there, I think it's only cool and good manners to play one or two things that they did in the interim. Yeah, and, and by the way, I'm just thinking about this. My entire episode today is people are living on the music that was created 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So so, so that's the theme for this episode. But, uh, but I'll just quickly say this about the Slither thing. Uh, I think it balances the scales because when, as a fan, when you look at it and you say, "Oh, Duff and Slash has to play the Chinese stuff," but you, you know, it, it seemed a little bit like, "Well, that doesn't seem fair." But the other thing that I thought was amazing is, for years, Axel hasn't uh, done sound check. In fact, did he ever do sound check back in the day? It was always the band that rehearses and he comes in for the gig, right? Or, or am I completely off base with that? No, you're pretty much on base. So that that too was remarkable. That yeah, right. I mean, as a team, they were on stage doing what bands have always meant 
to do is hang out and right. That that was cool well, too. Well, yeah, and let's not lose sight of something. When this whole uh, project was announced, the conventional wisdom was, well, let's see if they actually play both Coachellas, and they'll probably have an argument and fall apart by the time they get to Mexico. Um, I got a, an email from, from one of the band members saying, 18 months, who would have believed it? And, you know, I'm just going to take my hat off and go, hey, guys, well done, because you've exceeded yep. expectation and you've gone out there and you've really delivered. And whatever I think of it acts on a personal level, on a professional level, I am very impressed with the fact that he's gone through an amazing workload for anybody of any age, let alone somebody in his 50s. And the fact that he's prepared to go out there and do a three-hour show is just, to me, mind-boggling. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, no, I agree. There, there, there's, there's no complaint. And uh, let's just hope that the 18 months uh, becomes 36 months and then 72 months. I mean, just keep it going. With a lot of the bands retiring from the Slayers and all that, uh, GNR is perfect to fill those voids and fill those arena dates and fill those stadium dates and keep it going. I mean, just keep it going. So uh, here we are. Without further ado, from Guns N' Roses, it is the one, the only. You'll just have to listen. We are speaking with uh, Guns N' Roses keyboardist Dizzy Reed. The new solo album is called Rock and Roll Ain't Easy. Dizzy, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's it's uh, Thanks for having me, Mitch. I'm yeah, it's happy. been... It's been a while, actually. It's been uh, probably like four years, five years since we last talked about anything. So it's, it's good to have you back. Lots, lots of stuff can happen in five years. Right. I mean, we, we, we went from Dead Daisies to one of the most successful reunion tours or, or you know, reformations ever. But uh, let me get right into this, uh, this album. And of course, uh, you do have that Hookers and Blow uh, tour coming up with the Dead Daisies, which will bring you through to Ottawa and Montreal and my part of the world. And I will go see that but um rock and roll ain't easy it has been what a 10 12 year do we want to call it a struggle a, a, what do you what do you want to call it a work of passion t t talk to me about about the album and and sort of the time that it took to get it out um well it's definitely a labor of love if nothing else um and yes it did take a long time um for a lot of reasons um none you know and i, I would have Love to have it come out, you know, a long time ago, much sooner. But I think everything happened the way it did for a reason. Um, you know, we ended up getting the right people, ended up with the right label. And, uh, you know, sometimes things work out that way. Yeah, they really do. So so talk to me about where these songs come from. Were, were they always intended for a solo project? Or were you these writing these songs, intending them to get them to GNR or intending them to get to over to Slash's stuff or, or some other outlet? Or were these always, no, these are Dizzy songs, and I will get them together and put them out eventually? I, you know, I think I, they were kind of in my head, and I needed to get them out, get them out of my head um, more than anything. I think uh, certainly uh, when I have an idea, the first thing I think of is, is, is Guns N' Roses because I'd be foolish not to. Um, but uh, in this case, you know, I had some, some lyrical and, and vocal melody ideas that I, that I just I put down. And, 
it started to shape up more and more like maybe I should go record it. And that's kind of what we did. Uh, so talk to me about who's on the album. I know you've got uh, Mike Duda, who, of course, has spent time with Wasp. I'm, I'm assuming Alex uh, Grossi from Quiet Riot has been on it. Del James helped out. Who are sort of the, the, the players on this album? Well, I mean, it's a, a long list of people. I mean, we went in to do this without without a band, which is uh, um, a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, but with, uh, you know, Dell was really good at, Dell James, who co-produced the record with me, was very good at uh, sort of, he was sort of a Frankenstein of just putting, you know, different people together from different bands. And, and a lot of it had to do with uh, when we could get them and um, and all that. So, um, but yeah, uh, Alex is on the record and, and Mike Duda, um, along with uh, my good friend Richard Fortas, um, they were two of the people that were sort of, I guess, I want to say um, motivational, along with Dell, uh, as far as like doing this record. Because I had some some stuff demoed up, some demo tapes of, of stuff that I'd sang and, and just did in my home studio. And I, one of my favorite activities, I say this a lot, is to you know get drunk and play demo tapes for my friends, and that's kind of what I did. And they. Uh, they sort of convinced me to maybe go record this and they played a big part in the recording. Um, Richard's guitar work is stellar. Mike played on a lot of songs, but you know, not to take anything away from everybody else, all the people that played on the record did uh, are amazing. Really just a great, so lucky to have, uh, you know, friends like that, that are that talented that can all come, you know, contribute to the record. It was great. It really is. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Richard Fortas. Cause he obviously has spent time with you in the dead daisies. He has spent time by himself with Psychedelic Furs and um, Thin Lizzy and all these other bands. What did he bring to this album and what does he bring also to what GNR does? Because when I saw three shows uh, on the tour and spectacular, one was better than the other. And my favorite being in Ottawa, you just got you guys nailed it that night. What does he bring in terms of a player? Because a lot of times we, we we sort of overlook him as a player. Um, I, it's, I mean, I find it hard to overlook him really, but he's, um, and also he, uh, actually I, I played with psychedelic furs as well. Richard got me into that gig. That's right. I did a few tours with them, which was, which was great. And Mars Williams from the psychedelic furs plays saxophone on two of the tracks on the record as well. But, um, yeah, Richard just, he raises the bar, man. He's, um, extremely versatile. He's, um, super talented. He looks cool as hell. And, uh, you know, he's, he's easy to get along with. So. That's pretty much a win-win-win for everybody. Yeah, it really is. It, it, I mean, he really is. Um, now, the Hookers and Blows tour that, that's coming up here with the Dead Daisies, uh, let me ask you about that. First of all, will you at any time join the Daisies on stage? And is it going to be uh, you know, just sort of what the Hookers and Blow does, or is it going to be a lot of the Dizzy Reed rock and roll ain't easy solo stuff coming through? Ooh, um, well, I just uh, yeah, we are definitely going to play some stuff off, off my record. Um, we have been lately. We started incorporating some of the songs into the set. I tried to keep the two things separate for a while, but uh, you know, now that the record's out, it's like you know, I might as well just go ahead and play some of the songs. And I don't know if I'm gonna if uh, I'm gonna join the Dead Daisies on stage or not. We'll have to discuss that. And um, I don't know. I'm kind of like a dog, you know. If you put a bone out there, I'll probably go out and play. In terms of Hookers and Blow, though, will there be an album coming out as well? Because I'm. You know, you, you, you have you've been in the in in the public eye since, you know, really for for me since the 1990s. And there hasn't been that many releases that you've been a part of. Is, do you want to get out there more and maybe have a Hookers and Blow album come out as well? One of the things when when we started Hookers and Blow some 15 years ago, our main objective was to do everything opposite of what we'd been doing 
uh, as far as uh, our musical careers. We uh, to not get a deal to not really <laughs> we didn't really care. Um, I think um, at some point maybe we you know started to care a little bit and uh, we became a bit more of a viable um, um, entertainment commodity so to speak. Um, but I don't think we're you know I I don't see it in the in the cards for us doing a record. But uh, you never know. I mean anything could happen. They really could. Um... If I may, I'll ask you just a, a couple of GNR questions, just for my own edification. Uh, having seen three shows, and I saw what you guys did with, with Slash and Duff and, on the Chinese democracy songs. Um, talk to me a little bit about what they bring to those songs, because you know the album is certainly overlooked, but when you when you get those guys playing on it live, it seems to add an extra dimension. It really makes some GNR songs. Um, is that how you sort of feel as well? Oh, well, I think, you know, first of all, Chinese democracy, I, I, you know, I poured my, my guts into that record, um, for a long time. And, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Very proud to have been a part of it, I should say. Um, but you know, with, uh, Slash and Duff, they just, they make the songs sound like, it sounds like Guns N' Roses, man. And, uh, they, I think maybe a lot of, in a lot of cases, they were always, I guess, intended to sound that way. And I think the way that they, uh, what they bring to those songs is great. And it's just, it's really cool that we're doing those. And it's, uh, I know the people are digging it and, um, it, yeah. So it's, uh, um, it, it feels right. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it really does. And it sounds right too. And that's, that's what I think is spectacular. Cause you go there wanting, of course, to hear, you know, welcome to the jungle and, and you could be mine and stuff. And then you hear Chinese democracy or, um, better, or, you know, this, I love, and then you hear slashes playing on it and you go, yeah, that's 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 the way it should be, and it's just spectacular. And that's not, of course, to, to to put down the people that played on the album, but it's just it just gives it that little extra edge. Um, with all the shows and all the stuff that's been recorded over the the last year, year and a half, do you think we at, at some point we see a GNR live album or we see something come out from the band? Um, you'll know before I do for sure. <laughs> usually works, right? Um, right, because yeah, I, you, I, I, I really. It's uh, it's amazing that uh, yeah, the, the internet seems to know a lot of this stuff first. So going back to the album, then uh, the sound is this very old school sort of rock and roll, old school sort of like Rolling Stones kind of vibe to it. it talk to me a little bit about your influences and what you were trying to put into this album. Well, you definitely named one, <clears throat> Rolling Stones for sure. I think uh, you know, as one single entity, they're probably the the biggest influence on me. Um. Just a, from a production standpoint, just the fact that you know when I discovered very young, I started playing rock music when I was like 12 years old in front of people. So <clears throat> it's been a long time. But um, when I, I accidentally bought "Get Your Yayas Out," which and I realized that those songs that they did in the studio, I we could my band could play them live because they just they were stripped down versions, and a good song is a good song. I think. Um, I kind of always carry that with me, whatever I'm doing, you know? Um, so, but, uh, the stones certainly, um, most of the classic bands, but, uh, you know, also I, I can't, you know, just being in guns and roses for so long and being around them and what they did and how they did it and learning from them over the years, that certainly had a lot to do with how we, how we made the record too. Um, uh, just, you know, I've been very fortunate, very lucky to, uh, have worked with, uh, with those guys over the years and um you know it's got to see it firsthand and uh you know i take notes 
Well, well, and you've taken great notes. Uh, so, so, so again, you mentioned GNR. So let me just ask you about that. You you got into the band, you know, after they hit with the original five, and you you added to the Use Your Illusion uh, albums, and of course, uh, tour. Um, talk to me about a little bit about that time and, and what it was like to, to be part of that and, and to be part of that sort of craziness and, and monster of, of a production that it was, because you went basically from bars to stadiums around the world. And then back to bars. Right. Then, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, um, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I can't, uh, it's hard to describe it. I don't think, you know, it's anything like that too many people will go through that um but uh you know it's uh it kind of felt like it was meant to be in a lot of ways for me i think i'd I'd known the guys for a long time and um i know i remember the first time i I saw them at the troubadour i just said to myself i mean a lot of people were uh you know jealous or hating on the band because they were you know they were doing something different um i saw them play i went i need to join that band that's (laughs) i gotta get out of the band i'm in i gotta join that band but, uh, and, you know, it eventually happened, but, and, you know, that was, you know, Axel had an idea in, in his head. He had a plan and that was to add a keyboard player at some point in time. And, um, and he told me very early on that that was going to be me and he stuck to his word. So, um, I was really just kind of doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing and doing what I had to be doing and enjoying the hell out of it. Then what compels you, you know, cause you're, you're, you're going off to this summer, of course, and you're going to do stadiums and festivals across the world. What sort of compels you to hop sort of in a van, if I can say that, and, and join the Dead Daisies on the road with, with hookers and blow and play? Like in Montreal, you're playing the Fufun Electric, which, which is a tiny club. It's, it's sort of this, you know, back club. Um, why not just sort of stay home and enjoy the, the sort of the fruits of your labors with, with GNR? Well, you know, my, uh, my wife asked me that question, too. <laughs> a lot. So I just take her on the road with me now. But um, I, you know what? I love playing music, man. I really do. And, uh, I, my kids are all grown up and off to school now. So I mean, I'm off to college or, or doing whatever. So, I mean, what else am I going to do? I, I, I love playing music. I love traveling. I, I love, uh, you know, talking to the people and just, um, having a good time, man. That's, it's, that's to me, there's nothing cooler than that. Um, and whether it's in a van on a bus in a jet doesn't matter to me. Um, I, I think I was born to do this and I, and I love doing it. And your your story is certainly uh, very much a Cinderella story. I can, I can actually see your story being put into a movie. Now, now you did mention the Troubadour. Um, if we can, just for a second, talk to me about that first gig with GNR at the Troubadour on April first. Everybody thought it was an April Fool's joke because of the of the date, um, but it really was something unique and special. What, what was that like going into it? Was there a lot of nerves? Like, oh my God, if we screw this up, we we screw up the entire. Year. I mean. Talk to me about the pressure and the joy and then sort of the, the, the sense of triumph if there was one after it was done. Oh, you know, I, there's, I mean, there's always a little bit of pressure, I guess, you know, for at, that, at the level that, that the band play, plays at and what people expect, I suppose. Um, not so much for me, more for the other guys, I guess. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a little bit emotional, I think, for me. Um, I'd spent so many nights at the Troubadour. I used to sleep upstairs at the Troubadour, um, when I didn't have a place to stay, you know? So, uh, a lot of history in that place. Um, first, first gig I ever did in LA was at the Troubadour. And, um, so that was, that was amazing, but there was, 
you know, also with that, there was so much uh, fan, so many, you know, just people I hadn't seen in a long time. And, uh, you know, there was there was TV and and everything there. So it was it was a big deal. And that kind of uh, it was kind of a whirlwind, you know, it just kind of kind of flew by. But, man, it just it felt right. It really did. It, it felt like we were uh, it, it was a great way to kick things off. That's for sure. Uh, you know, um, so, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and and it, and it also felt right from the fans' perspective. You know, over the years, where where the the band, the, the GNR chains musicians and stuff, you stuck it out. You you stayed there uh, side by side with Axel. What sort of compelled you to stay? Even though there there were some times where there were lean years and there was no action and there was nothing going on, why didn't you sort of say, okay, I'm going to go join X Y Z band and we're done? What, what sort of kept you kept you in line or kept you there? Well, I mean. As far as like you know, leaving and, and joining something else, um, and, and I mean, you did do the Dead Daisies, of course. But but sure, that, but you know that was always just that was just a I want to say temporary, but it was it was something that uh, you know we did for uh, for fun, and, for, and we did some great when we made some great music, we played some great shows. I got to play with some great musicians, but it was always sort of a it wasn't a you know a permanent thing really. Um, it, uh, it it was it was great, but it wasn't uh, something that I was going to necessarily put all my eggs in that basket. I mean, as far as Guns N' Roses, what else am I going to do really that's better than that? That's what's what's on, what's beyond the horizon after Guns N' Roses. There's not much, if anything, really. So, um, no, I mean, I'll, you, you could you join know, the Stones. I mean, that's that's pretty much it, right? Well, I, there, that would be a tough decision at that point, you know, but they have my phone wasn't ringing. So, um, you know, Axel, he he um, gave me this opportunity and uh I'm forever grateful for it. Um, and, uh, so, you know, when it came down to it and I was going to stick by my man and, uh, we had, it's like, we had a lot of business that we had to finish. And, um, and that, that's, that's how I am. That's how I, that's, you know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, if someone does something like that for you, you it's, uh, you know, loyalty sometimes is, is the best thing. It really is. And it's gotta be, exceptionally rewarding now to see the sort of what's happening with the band because you know listen in what, what was it 2014 i think it was i saw you at the the metropolis in montreal with gnr it was you know 2300 people and then the next time you roll into town it's at park jean drapeau with 50,000 people there's got to be just this this great reward of like yep I, I, this was right this was it was the right thing to stick around right i mean yeah you know for sure i don't i don't you know I don't, I don't regret it at all. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's, and it's great for the fans really too. I mean, it's just, uh, um, all these shows have been so, so awesome. The fans have been so great. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy as hell to be here. Um, let me know if you if, if you get if you get bored with the GNR questions, cause I do want to talk of course about uh, the hookers and blows and stuff too, but, uh, um, Everybody keeps saying that GNR should make a new album, but do, do you think that's really necessary? I mean, you look at the crowds, you look at the ticket sales, you look at the excitement over the upcoming box set. Is new music really something that that's necessary for a band like GNR at this point? Um, I don't know if it's ever necessary for anybody, really. I mean, but right. if there's, you know, if there's some good ideas, then, you know, they should, why not record them and put them out? I mean, um but uh, I, I don't. I can't say that it, that it's necessary or not. I don't know. Um, I think it'd be awesome, but uh, we'll see. 
Uh, well, yeah, it, it would be awesome, and, and hopefully we'll see something. Now, in terms of, of yours, since the rock and roll ain't easy took 10 years, as we said before, I'm assuming that in 10 years you didn't write just 10, you know, 12 or 13 tracks. There's probably a whole bunch of other ones. Is there a timetable to get a, a second Dizzy Reed album out in the next year or, or, or two years? Or was this like, no, this is my one shot. It's done. Move on. I, I would certainly love to put out some more music. Definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's definitely going to happen. And, and it's it's not going to take 10 years this time, because, you know, in that 10 years, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what 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 to do and what not to do and how to do it. And, uh, you know, the best thing about this record, I should say, is that I just wanted to put it out. It took it took so long. There were so many obstacles and barriers. And, and then, you know, I had to put it on the back burner a lot. Um, because of, you know, like Guns N' Roses is my, is my main priority. So if we're working, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't worrying about that. And, you know, and they had to do the dead daisies thing for a while and stuff. So once it came out, I was just, I just wanted to get it out. I was, I was relieved. So the best thing is I had no expectations. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, that's kind of all right. Um, but a lot, you know, a lot of the feedback and, and comments and everything I've heard has, has been positive. So that's all, all just icing on the cake. Um, but, uh, regardless of any of that, I for sure um, have a, a lot of songs that I want to put out. So there'll, there'll be another record for sure. And, and getting behind the mic and handling the vocals, how was that for you? Because, you know, we, we've known you as the keyboardist who, who does some backing vocals, but putting yourself front and center, how was that for you? Um, it's, singing is hard as hell. It's, for everybody out there that wants to be a singer, man, um, you know what? Just think about it. Take some time. It's flipping hard, man. So <laughs> I have so much respect for anyone who does it for for a, you know full time, um, especially you know people like Axel on that on that level. It, it's 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 pretty amazing what what he can do every night. But I you know for me I just I um when I was young I said I started my first band when I was 12 years old and we we started touring around playing for money and I did that I was with that band till I was 20 and I was the singer for that band so I, it's kind of um, and I kind of became the singer for that band by by default because right. no one else really sings. So um, I had a bit of a voice and I, I kind of worked on it. I just I got tired of it at one point. Um, uh, the band broke up and I thought maybe I'll try my luck as a keyboard player. I might have, you know, better opportunities might come my way. And I think I was the pressure was starting to get me singing and stuff. So I think I made the right choice, by the way, of, of choosing the keyboards. That, <laughs> but um I, so, it, you know, as far as singing, it's, it's, it's kind of natural to me in, in some ways. It's, it's not, it's not, well, I guess it's not totally foreign to me as I don't feel completely out of place up there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but it's hard and, uh, I'm trying to get better. <laughs> well, it turned out pretty good. Actually, I got to say the, the rock and roll ain't easy. Like I said before, has that sort of dirty rolling stones kind of, kind of vibe to it and, and definitely recommended. Um, I'm going to go back and forth here. Last year, Steven Adler joined you for five shows. Uh, what was it like to be on stage and have those guys, uh, you know, Duff and Slash, Axel, and now Steven for those five shows? Tell me a little bit about the, the emotion of that and, and the feeling of that. And, of course, the crowd reaction was, was phenomenal. Um, what was that like for you? I was just I was really happy for Steven and really happy for the fans. And um, I think it was wonderful. I really do. Yeah, it really was right, and uh, you know, good on good on on the band for for letting that happen because I think it really made a, a a point to say that hey, um, after the uh, after the uh, GNR tour is over, um, 
and the Dead Daisy stuff is done. Where do you see sort of you and 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 your different projects going in 2019? Um, that's a good question. You know, it's hopefully a. Um, I definitely would like to continue to uh, go out and push push this record. Um, you know, try to give it my my full attention for a little bit at least. Um, but we'll see what's on the horizon. You know, if GNR comes calling, then that's that's it. You know, that's my number one thing. And but you know, I mean, you said the Stones might call, so I could do that, I suppose. But uh, we'll see. Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, we'll see. Um, I, I would love to uh, to continue to promote this record, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. And and who knows? Maybe maybe ACDC can add a, a keyboardist for for their tour. <laughs> that that would be that that would be spectacular, wouldn't it? Um, well, I think I'm the right guy for sure. You are the right guy. Um, well, in fact, let me just quickly ask you about that. Uh, when when Axel went off and joined ACDC, I, I raised my hand up as, yeah, that's going to be fantastic. And it turned out it was. But a lot of a lot of folks said, ooh, what is that? Um, were you happy for him when he went and joined the band? Because he really, when you look at the video footage, his face is really like a kid in a candy store. Of course. You know what? Seriously, him singing with ACDC is cool as fuck, dude. That is so incredible. And, and I... I've, couldn't be happier and they there's no one better for that gig so i think it's 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 extremely cool extremely kick-ass and and uh rock and roll as hell man really is it really is and uh, you know there's word that there might be an album coming so let's you know pray to the gods the rock gods um on of course the the rock and roll ain't easy you worked a little bit with uh, black star writers frontman ricky warwick who to me is one of the greatest rock and roll singers currently um what was it like working with Ricky? And so talk to me a little bit about that relationship. Uh, obviously, Richard had no, knew him from the Thin Lizzy days. Uh, talk to me about Ricky. You know, I've known Ricky for a very long time. I, I met him through Dell James back in the early 90s. Um, we were up to all kinds of shenanigans back then, the three of us. Um, and uh, um, he's just a great guy, great songwriter. Um, you know, I, I love the Almighty. Uh, and... Uh, and when he got the Thin Lazy gig, I was totally stoked for him. Of course, you know he's he's he was perfect for that. Um, and uh, he also I did some uh, did some work with him when he was he produced a, a band called uh, Confederacy of Horsepower, and I uh, I played on that record. He produced it. Um, so we you know we kept in touch over the years and, uh, and through um, and through Dell James especially. And um, yeah, they they uh, Dell said, hey, I, you know, bring in Ricky. We got this so- song idea. Um, which en- ended up being this don't look like Vegas. And, uh, so it was perfect for the record. And then he helped me out with uh, a song called mystery in exile. He, he, uh, he had this twisted Corden version that just made the song. Uh, it, it gave that song the boost that it needed. So, um, he's awesome to work with. Great to hang out with, um, can drink anybody under the table except for me, maybe. And, uh, he's, um, you know, he's fantastic. He's, he's a good friend. Yeah, and he he he's, you know, you're right. The Almighty is one of those bands that that slipped under the radar in North America and Europe. They they got it, but over here we sort of didn't get it. And then Black Star Riders again in Europe, they're getting it here. People are like, eh, what is that? And yet, Ricky just delivers time after time after time again. Um, Dizzy, it's always a pleasure to uh, to talk to you. I know that uh, I might have gone a little heavy on GNR questions, but you have to understand it. Huge uh, fan from the beginning and, you know. It's all good, man. It's all good. 
and 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 hopefully we'll see uh, we'll see the band in in Montreal again soon. And of course, uh, you are here on August 26th at the Fufun Electric with the Dead Daisies. August 25th in Ottawa at the Brass Monkey, and uh, the day after I will be turning 50. So you are going to be my 50th anniversary celebration or 50th birthday celebration. So I can't wait. I, that's awesome. I can't wait to be a part of that. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of fun. And uh, just thank you for all the uh, the memories and all the music over the time. And I, I, I know rock and roll ain't easy, but uh, hopefully the uh, the next album will be easier and we'll get it out in the next uh, you know year and we can do this again very soon. Uh, for sure, man. Thank you so much, Mitch, for your support over the years. And uh, to all the fans out there, thank you too. And I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of you very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Dizzy. Always a pleasure. Rock on, man. Cheers. Peace. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.